Hi, and welcome to Behind the Barriers with me, Joe Whittle, the show that aims to infiltrate silos, create connections, and build relationships within the rail industry. Coming up on today's show. If you've got a sat-nav in your car, because it's convenient for your lifestyle, then I'm sure that if it comes to your personal safety, then technology should be used for that too. It's a no-brainer. If you're happy to use technology for, for just for lifestyle reasons, you should be happy to use it to keep you safe so that you can maintain that lifestyle. Today, I'm joined by Jules Reed. Jules is the head of behavioral science at a company called Tended and has worked in and around the rail industry for a number of years now, and that's fair to say. So Jules, welcome to the show. Thank you. So what's been going on in your life recently that you didn't expect? So I guess since lockdown, I started this job with Tended and it's the first time that I've ever worked from a home office. So up until then, I was out on sites or training, you know, in regions 35 to 40 weeks a year. So getting into a home office where the commute is all of 10 minutes has been absolutely amazing. I've loved it. <laughs> it's also enabled me to get a pet. And uh, and, I, and I've loved that too. Unfortunately, or not unfortunately, but we tended has gotten really, really busy. And now I'm spending every week away from home. <laughs> and I've got the added burden of someone having to take care of my pet. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> it's it's good it's good in in you know from a work perspective yeah but yeah the cat's not happy with me at the minute. <laughs> obviously if you started remote working how does it feel now going back into the office type environment is it is it different is it strange because i know for myself i joined my i joined my team during the pandemic didn't really see anybody obviously and then yeah. we started to be more hybrid and start going to the office more and i've I, i've found it strange sometimes i'm um, just wondering how you thought about it yeah i'm one of those um, paradoxical people because when i'm on my own i enjoy my own company and when i'm with people i enjoy that too yeah. so so actually i don't find it difficult at all i mean not that i'm in the office a lot i mean i the office is in lincoln and i go there probably once every two months or something like that. We do have regular socials that we go to just to, so everybody can get together and sort of, you know, get that nice rapport going again. But for me, it's it, I'm mostly out with clients. And, and that means, generally speaking, that I'm working with people probably maybe three or four weeks at a time, and then I'll move on, and then I'll come back a little bit. And so that, you know, it's all overlapping. Yeah. It's a bit manic, to be fair, at the minute, but I quite like that too, you know. Yeah. It's, um, because because people fascinate me. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing. People absolutely fascinate me. Somebody said to me the other day about being judged, and I said to them, my job's not to judge people. My mm -hmm. job's to understand them, probably in a way that they don't understand themselves, and then sort of, sort of offer it back to them in a way they do understand yeah one guy was telling me how angry he was getting just lately and he was in this new team and it and people were starting not to like him and and I'd spoken to him a few times and I said but you generally speaking I don't see you as an angry person would you say you were angry outside of work and he said no and I said to him look around you who's angry at work and he said the supervisor and I said and it's contagious yeah you're probably doing it because he's doing it yep. so just 
have a look at the effect that he's having and ask yourself, do you want that same effect? And by this is what I mean about, you know, he knew he was getting really agitated and angry, you know, like lashing out a little bit at things that were going wrong, but it was out of character. Yeah. I suppose it's making yourself aware that that's happening as well. That's the that's the powerful part of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Jules, what's your story? Where are you from? What have you done? Oh, my goodness. Uh, do you know what? I am a massive believer in in opportunity. OK, massive believer. I think that opportunities present themselves to people all the time. And there are three sorts of people. There are those who it's there right in front of their face and they don't see it at all. And then there are people who they see it, but they it scares them because taking the opportunity might be a bit of a risk to them. And so they excuse themselves from it. You know, it's not the right time or it's not the right opportunity or whatever. And then there are people who go, do you know what? That is, it's it's an opportunity. And regardless of the risk, I'm going to take it. And I think most of the time I fall into that latter group. Yeah. But but what happened was I didn't do my degree until I was I started it when I was 33. So I was a bit late to it. I'd had my children and then it was sort of getting to be my time. I did a teaching degree, but I was really interested in psychology because up until that point, I'd, I'd been qualifying as a therapist in a couple of modals. And that was really because I wanted to understand bringing my children up, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and what that meant. So when it came to the teaching degree, the psychology of learning to me was the most fascinating thing. And that's what I ended up doing the dissertation on. And then and then moved on from, you know, that developed as well. But also at the same time, I was working for Countryside Services for Derbyshire County Council. And I moved to the health and safety department for looking after children who were going outside of school for education. So whether that was a three-year-old going pond dipping or a 16, 17-year-old going skiing, then it was my job to help the teachers to do the risk assessments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had loco parentis, obviously. So how did they manage that? So it's my job to do that. And so I needed a NEBOSH qualification. And so I did that on a short-term shortish term contract it kept getting renewed but it was a bit stressful never knowing whether it was going to get renewed again so I started looking around for a job and found one with Balfour Beatty and it said you needed to have a petals qualification I had no idea what that is Um, I now know it's a training qualification and also a health and safety qualification so I had the NEBOSH from doing this job and then also um, some kind of psychology expertise and it was as if you know this is what I mean about opportunity how many people have got those three things yeah (laughs) and it and is needed within a job role you know and it's like wow it's as if everything's sort of come together (laughs) everything that I'm passionate about and now here's a job um so I phoned them and I said what is petals oh they asked for um smsts which is a a health and safety qualification but I didn't know what that was at the time and I said look I've got a tr- I've got a teaching degree uh, I've got qualifications in uh, behavior applied behavioral sciences and um and I've got a NEBOSH qualification can I apply and she said you're well qualified for the job yeah. come along and that was my first job in a behavioral safety role and it was training 
Um, and it was a training package that had been bought in from another company. And as we were going along and I was learning more and more about heavy industry because that was construction, I was beginning to realise that actually there was this this very strong mismatch between what leaders want and what workers can apply. Mm-hmm. And that was about the culture. So I took that training then and any subsequent training out of the behaviour arena and brought it into the culture arena. And that's been kind of my work ever since until working with Tended when I've started to apply it to technology and safety as well. Would you say that the leader's view on safety is considerably different to the frontline's view on safety? Yes. Why is that? So I think that this because you've got two very different cultures. If you look at a safety climate survey, for example, what you'll find is that within the sort of organizational triangle, so you've got your leaders at the top, the workforce at the bottom, and somewhere just slightly lower than midway. If you look at the answers that are given to safety climate surveys from that line in the middle, Going upwards gets progressively more positive and going downwards gets progressively more negative. And that's because there's a difference between the intention of managers and leaders and the impact it has on workers. And there is this, you know, this line then that's almost almost like a concrete block of the way things happen in practice and the way that managers want things to happen. And partly that's to do with the different direction that those two sets of people look in. Mm -hmm. So leaders look forward. How do we make improvements? What can we do better in future? Whereas if you are being given safety initiatives, then a worker will look backwards and say, how have these initiatives landed before? How have they affected us in the past? And depending on that experience then, depends then on how that lands with them. And so this is the difference between the leadership are looking forward into the future because they they have a job to make things better. The workforce are looking backwards and saying, this is this doesn't land very well for us. It usually means extra work. Mm-hmm. We don't know very often these things are given without context. Yeah. So it's just a safety initiative. It's the latest uh, popular thing, you know, yeah. or it's put in because there isn't a latest popular thing and we're filling a gap. So it's there's a very much a, a lack of purpose mm-hmm. as to why that particular, you know, safety campaign is being run. And then on top of that, there is very little context sometimes because what's the outcome? You know, what is it? If I'm given a safety stand down day and that safety stand down day is all about, let's just say it's it's for ease, it slips, trips and falls. Mm-hmm. We talk about perhaps some cases of, you know, injuries. So we'll talk about that. We'll then talk about what the regulations say and what people should be implementing in terms of risk assessing and all that sort of stuff. And then people are told, so go out there and behave better. There is no outcome to that. For the person on the ground, there might be some nice statistics come out the other end if people do 
behave better for managers. But for the workforce, it's like what benefit is the action going to be? And so it lacks context as well. And this is why very often these safety campaigns don't land. Now, my way of thinking is that they should have one vision, that leaders only, the right at the top of the triangle for safety, they only have one job, and that's to create a vision. Okay. (laughs) Now, that's not a mission statement. This is not about nice words. One of the things that they get wrong in that is that they put out this fancy, you know, sentence or two that, that says this is our intent. A vision has to be visualized, doesn't it? And if you can visualize what I always say, try and visualize what you want people to be thinking, feeling and doing in the next generation or the generation beyond that. What are they going to do that makes them look back at this generation and laugh and say, can't believe that they did it that way? Because now we do it this way and it's so much better. Then you can create a vision, almost like a story, because when people start to listen to stories and they have that that mind's eye view, that's how the brain latches onto. Ah, that's what I've got to work towards. Then every safety campaign, it should be obvious that it's bringing you a step closer to that vision. That Therefore, it has purpose. It has an outcome. And you can see that you're adding value to the progress because stop, start campaigning. It's just wearing. Yeah, you get change fatigue and all sorts come with that. Yeah, yeah. So do you think that between leaders and the front line, obviously the leaders will make the the vision statement. Do you think that they always consider the front line's views and thoughts or do you think they just take their own views and opinions and and assume what the front line are thinking? I'm going to be controversial and say I'm not sure it matters. Okay. Okay. Because the leaders are there to lead mm-hmm. and it's and it's their job to do that. And so provided that there is a reason for that vision being in place, which should be good safety, yep. no fatalities, no major injuries. So provided the vision is there and it's and you can visualize it in your mind's eye, I think the next level down from then need to write all their strategies, their procedures, their processes in order that it brings that into an auditable and an assurance process. And then the next level down from that, which are likely to be your project managers or your frontline leaders, they have to then go from that paperwork and that vision and say, how do we make that live within a working environment? Mm -hmm. And for them, role modelling is one of the biggest things they can do. So I very often hear that level of management saying they feel sandwiched between workers belly aching about change and managers saying we need to change. Yeah. Okay. And so what I say to them is don't feel the pressure of interpreting from the top and then from the bottom. The only thing you need to do is understand that you are a role model. Everything you do, everything you say is being watched by the workforce and by your managers above. And if you are being, Mm -hmm. living what that vision is, then you are doing your job in terms of safety. And what happens is 
then the workforce have two things that they can grasp onto then. The first is they can see that golden thread right from the top from the vision coming right down to them. It's unbreakable, it's unshakable, it's obvious what people want from safety. So that's the first thing they get. The second is they get a good role model and people tend to do what their managers want of them. <laughs> so if they've got a manager who just wants the job done at any cost, then guess what? That's what they're likely to do. And yeah. that's going to be learned behavior then that they'll take on to other teams. Whereas if you've got a very clear understanding of what the organization wants and your immediate line managers are modeling that, then believe me, you won't have to tell people to change. You won't need a program. You won't need a training course or workshops. It'll just happen. It'll evolve that way. It always interests me because I always think when I first started my career as an apprentice, it used to be initiatives would come out and it, you would get the belly aching and the people being grumpy about this is just another thing and it won't stick. And then as I've progressed through my career, I've been in that position where the message has come down from above. You've got to try and implement it. So you've got to almost be that in between to the two worlds that is a tricky place to be um, but then now I've moved over to the TA we're in the policy world so when we when we write our standards when we uh, write our policy statements they've got to have safety in mind that's why I asked the question because when I'm doing things now it's almost I put myself in the position of when I was on the front line and how it impact me I think I'm just trying too much to look into oh is it going to impact them are they going to be annoyed with it or how is it yes. going to how is it going to land? Whereas, as, as you say, ultimately, the if the, if the leadership make a decision, yeah, it's only to try and improve things. So it's to try and improve safety. It's trying to improve uh, things that are happening on the front line, and it's getting yeah. that context piece right. Because if you don't, then that's yeah. where the, that's where the disparity comes. Absolutely, it's the way it's conveyed, and I think very often it's conveyed in a way of you're having to do this and you have to change but nothing else is going to change around you the conditions the working practices the behaviors of leaders are all going to remain the same but you need to change and of course there's going to be resistance to that um one of the things that you there's two things actually so first of all it's important to say that inconsistency kills culture okay mm -hmm. so and this is why I'm saying it, that strong thread has to be known throughout the organization. So I guess the, the other thing then is that you cannot tell somebody to change. You have to change the conditions that they work under because it's the experience that made them that way. Mm -hmm. And it's different experiences that will change them. You can't. I always use an analogy of asking somebody who is under a lot of pressure and travels a lot, do you speed? If they say, yes, I speed. OK. If I tell them then that on the motorway, the speed limit is 70 miles an hour and they should not exceed that because it's dangerous. OK. What I've just done is I've imparted information. But have I changed their experience? No. The only way to change their behavior is to give them more time so that they don't need or feel the need to speed because of the time pressure. You yeah. have to change the condition to change the behavior. 
just giving information, which is what we tend to do in safety campaigns initially or, yeah. or primarily, is we just impart information and expect people to change. And that doesn't work. When you spoke about culture there, and obviously I sit within Network Rail and you sit external to it, but do you think as a railway as a whole that we have a good culture? I think there are pockets of good culture. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it's definitely, even in the short space of time that I've worked in rail, it is definitely getting better. But what I think happens traditionally is there is a really, but certainly when I first started in rail, you've got this real sense of hierarchy mm-hmm. and done down to. I do think that's changing. Whether it's changing quickly enough, I'm going to stick my neck out and say probably not. Yeah. And the reason I'm saying that is because there are still people who are having accidents and incidents more often than they really ought to. Do you think that the accidents that we're having that lead into a reportable incident, do you think that there's many underlying smaller things that are happening that aren't going reported? And is that due to a culture where people are worried about reporting it? Yeah, I think so. It's like I said, inconsistency kills culture. So for example, I went onto a site where there was some, um, and I won't say where this is, and it's not necessarily network rail. I just, I'll just give you this story. Is we went onto a site and um, somebody had forgotten their PTS card, mm-hmm. and we were told at that point that they couldn't go back home for it because they travelled. Yep. They'd also travelled in someone else's car, so it would, me- it would have meant two people going off-site anyway to get it. Yep. And so we were told that actually this does happen and it's three strikes and you're out. So there's a mark put against that um, you've not got your PTS card. Mm-hmm. And, and if you do that more than three times, then you're out. Well, that makes my brain scream <laughs> because that to me says we have a safety standard Mm-hmm. And we relax that safety standard when it's convenient for us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not consistent, and therefore it's killing culture. Yeah. Because what we're really doing is we're saying we'll say safety is important when we've got a campaign to do, and we'll tell everybody, you know, we'll bang on the table, you know, and say safety is so important, blah blah blah. But actually, in reality, it's not. And unfortunately, human brains generalize. Okay, so that's only got to happen with two or three different things to do with safety. And then the brain will generalize. Safety Mm -hmm. is not that important in this organization. That's it across the board. And anybody who comes and says, right, we've got this great safety campaign. Well, you can ignore them because that's just a load of tick box exercises going on so they can satisfy what the management want to hear. So you see how that then creates a them and us situation Mm -hmm. because the reality of working is very different then to what management say. Yeah. It's almost like if the culture was done properly, it's what the people do when nobody's watching. Yeah. So if the managers aren't out on site, how are they operating? Because that's if if culture is a success and safety culture is a success, they should be doing it when nobody's watching not just when somebody comes out on site yeah and for me that's very much around look i'm a a scuba diver an advanced scuba diver and um whenever i'm out with a group of divers we all take care of each other 
we go out and although you've done your own safety checks and you have a buddy, so they you double check with them. But nevertheless, if you're in a group, you are looking out for everybody in that group yeah. so that everybody's safe. And to me, when I talk to leaders about what's your vision, I think one of the strongest indicators of a good culture is when people do their own checks, they buddy with somebody to uh, double check, but actually they're always looking out for everybody in their team as a genuine care for those people and their safety. That to me is a good indication that you've got your safety culture absolutely right. Because what it means is that, because look, a manager saying, don't do this or don't do that has far less impact on your peers. If your peers or your immediate supervisor said, it's okay, we let that slide, mm -hmm. then you're more likely to follow that than you are what senior managers are saying. Yep. So for me, when you've got peers who say, put your hard hat on properly, it's not, you know, it's not right, or zip your vest up, or, you know, when you've got peers saying that to each other, that to me indicates that you have a really good safety culture. Yeah. Within Network Rail, we, we had a, a campaign, a hold handrail campaign, and I think a lot of people saw it as, you know, the safety point of when you're walking downstairs, make sure you're holding on to something because statistically uh, you're more likely to have a fall if you're not holding on to a handrail. Uh, yeah. But it was one of our senior leaders that actually made the point which resonated with me was, yeah, it was for that, but also it created that culture of being able to challenge each other, which I had not looked at it from that point of view. You know, if somebody's walking down the stairs, not holding the handrail, you could say you should be holding the handrail. It almost came across jokingly at points, but yeah, yeah, it, it was getting there. Um, and I know I've been I've been told a couple of times you need to hold the handrail, and if it's a senior member of staff, you will you'll do it. And if it's one of your peers or lower, it might be a bit more jokey, but it's yeah. it's how to translate that sort of message and that culture into something that's more something more solid in a way. So it's not just a laugh and a joke with it with your peers. Yeah. It's it's genuinely I'm challenging you, but it's nothing there's no malice in it. I think I, I mentioned this before and I think it's massively important to reiterate is that word care. Okay. Mm -hmm. You might not if I go back to the scuba diving analogy, I might not, generally speaking, get on with somebody in the group. You know, yeah. they might not be my people. However, in the circumstance of being underwater in a dangerous environment that goes out of the window, I mm -hmm. care about that human being. Yeah. And I think that's really the crux of this. When you're telling somebody you can challenge if somebody doesn't hold a handrail, well, that's information. Mm -hmm. If the experience comes back that you're ridiculed, oh, God, are you doing that management thing? Yeah. Or if you're, if, if you're challenged in a, a negative way, who the bloody hell do you think you are, mm -hmm. then your experience will stop you from doing it. No matter how much information a manager gives you that you can, your experience will stop you from doing it. Do you yep. see? Yeah, yeah. And so for me, this is why it's important that, that whenever we work with organisations, we're working at every level of the organisation so that we can get managers 
lined up with the right vision. We can get that into the paperwork. We can get that role modelled. We can get the workers then having a changed experience. But tell, but getting them on board with why that change of experience is benefiting them personally. Yeah. And would you say that's the most important part of your role? Yes. To an extent, when I, yes, when I'm doing when I'm doing culture and behaviour, I would say that's definitely the most important part of my role. And it's not easy because everybody's got different personalities. And I think one of the things that people worry about is that I'm trying to change them. And I'm not. I'm trying to change a style of thinking, if that makes sense. So I don't mind how, if you're the kind of manager, let's just say you're a frontline manager and you're all about the camaraderie Mm -hmm. within your team, I wouldn't expect you to change that. What I would expect you to do is have a very clear role modeling strategy. So I'll have a laugh and a joke with you, but when it comes to this, I'm on it. I'm deadly serious. And that's the same throughout. If you are if you are a much more sort of standoffish type of person, you're not, you know, very peopley, but you're still managing people, then I'm not asking you to suddenly become the life and soul. What I'm saying is that you do what you do, but when it comes to role modeling, this is where you get serious. Because that consistency, if you think about a worker who might have two or three different managers over a project or something, and they they all use different styles because they're all different people. But there is that common thread that when it comes to safety, this is exactly what every single one of them does. Then workers read that on a subconscious level because we're constantly scanning for patterns because the brain loves familiarity. So as soon mm-hmm. as it picks up a pattern, good or bad, it likes that it's done that. So if if there's that consistency throughout then the brain's going to pick up on that. And guess what? It won't be a conscious decision to follow suit. Mm-hmm. It will be a subconscious, automatic new behavior. Yeah, that's the way it's most powerful, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So what's the most important lesson that you've learned within your career that you think that everyone else should learn at some point in their life or in their career? Oh, that's a big question, isn't it? I think the biggest one is never make assumptions about people. If I'm being honest, I've learned this lesson several times. (laughs) And um, I think that we should always start off with people come from a good place, a good intent. I don't think whether you're, you're a leader or a middle manager or a worker, that you are out to deliberately do something wrong, particularly in safety. So starting off from a good place, because I think there's been too much judgment, particularly on the workforce. It goes both ways because I've sat in rooms where there's just been workers and for everything that goes wrong, they blame the managers. Mm-hmm. And I've sat in rooms of managers and for everything that's gone wrong, they blamed the workers. And so for me, is is don't make assumptions. Look in the mirror and see yeah. what you can do. See what you can do better. Stop looking at what managers do wrong or what that other team does wrong. Or for me, it's what can I do better for me? Because I can tell you now, I've and I'm not saying this of of, you know where you work or or whoever's listening, but 
I've been in situations where I've been doing accidents investigations and all the things that I've been put in place for the safety of the worker that has now, you know, th there's now been an accident. Mm -hmm. All those things are now being used against that worker. Yep. And it's now to try and limit the damage for the organisation. Yeah. And so I'm constantly saying to people, do what's right for you. Mm -hmm. Don't follow the crowd. Don't make assumptions that anybody's going to take care of you the way that you are. And try to accept that people will always do the, their best or the right thing if they're given the right environment, they're given the right conditions. I think people will always do the right thing. And don't assume any other way. Because I was saying to somebody the other day, now we know how the brain works that it's a natural brain function to become complacent, for yep. example. But I remember back in the day when I first started in health and safety, people used to get told off, you know, <laughs> yeah. for not staying alert or for not being aware that they're in a dangerous situation. They get told off, you know, for becoming complacent or getting distracted. But yep. we now know that people daydream and that's, again, a perfectly natural brain function. So I think... Just, yeah, I think the biggest thing I've learned is that most people, given the right circumstances, will do the right thing. Don't assume that if they're doing the wrong thing, it's because they are a negative person or they haven't got the, you know, the know-how or the, the willingness. I, I say to people, you know, this is not about them being pig-headed. There is a reason. And the reason is that they've had an experience that's brought them to being the way they are. Yeah. If you want them to be different then re-experience them. It is interesting. I think we're all guilty of making assumptions. I've done it myself in the past, but it's it's almost it's giving yourself that time to just pause for a second and think about it from the other person's perspective. And once you do that, it, it just makes makes things so much clearer. Because yeah. like you mentioned, nobody goes out in the morning to think, right, I'm going to be unsafe today. Yeah. We, we, no one wants to get hurt. The thing about that is because I and I get asked this question all the time is that I've got somebody in my team who's just like completely resistant and they if they can do something wrong, if they can find a wrong way, they'll do it. And I'll say to them, then they're in the wrong job. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of what I do, people think it's the softly, softly approach. And I guess it is to some extent, because what you're doing is you're you're giving people, I suppose, in, to some extent, the benefit of the doubt until you know for sure. Yeah. But once you know for sure, if that person is a risk taker, and there are reasons for that as well. Mm -hmm. But if that person's a risk taker in a dangerous environment, then they're in the wrong job. And I'm sorry, but then the softly, softly approach goes out of the window because yeah. we can't have people who are likely to put themselves or other people in danger. No, definitely not. Could one of the reasons, because I spoke on one of the previous episodes, we spoke to somebody who had uh, ADHD, for example. Yeah. And although as a mature adult, you're expected to understand the, the difference between right and wrong, when somebody tells you to do something, you do it that way. Mm. I'm starting to think if, if we have some members of our teams that have got neurodiverse conditions, is is that potentially sure. why they're taking risks? and do we need to find a different way to, to communicate? Absolutely. You know, there are all types of different learning differences and differences in abilities, regardless of neurodiversity. That's true. And there are rules in place, for example, for people with epilepsy. Mm -hmm. 
you know, they are limited in what they can do. And that's the same for neurodiverse people. This is not about discrimination. It's about understanding that if it causes a limitation in safety, particularly, then they have to be redeployed to something that's, you know, going to be less risky. And you're right. It could mean that they are you know, higher risk takers, not necessarily. I mean, one of the reasons that people can be high risk takers is it's part of their DNA. If you think about us or any species, it isn't it isn't the human body, the physicality of a person that is surviving. It's actually our DNA. Survival <laughs> of the fittest is what's, you know, brought us to where we are because that's transferred through DNA. And they will have been in tribes, you know, back in primitive times, there would have to be that person who would go out and try that berry that's never been tried before. It could be poisonous. And if they die, then they've taken themselves out of the DNA chain. But actually, if if they succeed, they become revered in the tribe, they get the best pick of the, the mating. And so therefore, the DNA goes on. The same with finding new places to dwell. Somebody's got to go out and risk life and limb to find somewhere better to live. Yeah. So, and then they again, if they were successful, they'd be revered. All that gets put into the DNA, so that down the line, people who are risk takers today, actually within their DNA, it's something to be proud of. You know. Yeah. What's your favourite part of the job that you do? So, my favourite part of the job that I do and have done for quite a long time is getting those aha moments. Especially with people who are massively resistant to resistant to what I do, which is obviously I look at cultures and I look at the way people behave trackside, and we 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 get some people who I think they I think deep down they're perhaps worried a little bit that I see through them. You know, there's an element mm-hmm. of that as well. They're probably you know traditionally quite negative anyway and very resistant to change i love people like that (laughs) because because once you get them to understand why they do what they do and why they think the way they think and that you can only do through really good listening and unearthing what's underneath the bluster that comes out once you get under the skin and you get them to see things slightly differently and they get that aha moment, they are your best advocates. Mm-hmm. You know, they're your champions. They're the people that go, you can trust this person. You can trust what she's saying. You can trust what she's doing. You can trust the organization. And usually because they're quite loud at resisting, they're also quite loud. They cast a big shadow, you know, even when they're championing. So actually, that's kind of, I suppose, my favourite part of the job is when I can get people like that on board and you suddenly realise that this is going to take off because of them. Mm-hmm. And actually, yeah, so so if I see somebody, if I can observe a group and I see one of these unofficial leaders, that, that, people, that person who everybody looks to for unofficial direction, but, but that's what they're doing, mm-hmm. they're the people that I make a beeline for. Yeah. Because because truthfully, you turn that power to good, to good use. Yeah. And I tell you, it it's it's like watching sort of magic happen because it changes even if it's only a microculture for that team, it changes the whole team. You change that mm-hmm. one person, the whole team follows suit. So it's um 
it's 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 good and it's challenging and I quite like a challenge. And speaking of challenges then, what barriers do you think or what barriers do you see that we've got in our industry and how do you think we could could overcome them? I think there is a tendency not across the board but there is a tendency for people to sort of hang on to the old ways. Mm-hmm. The ways that things have traditionally been done, and and that really does cause a resistance to anything new, innovative. There's all there's almost I'm sensing anyway. There's this mistrust. Yep. That it's going to benefit them. That it's going to stay even. You know, here today, gone tomorrow. How it's going to be used by managers. So, like with technology, is it going to track us? Is it going to be used punitively? So there's this massive, the biggest barrier, I think, is because of a lack of trust. Mm-hmm. And so breaking that down, and again, it's about re-experiencing people. But the only the only thing that I will say about that is you can't re-experience somebody once and think that's enough. Yep. Because who knows how much evidence somebody's going to need to build trust. Trust is a massive thing for human beings to to give. And so I'll give you an example. If you know somebody who is who constantly puts you down, they, they've just got something against you, and that's been your experience from start to finish, and then one day they come along and they offer you a bacon sandwich, mm-hmm. right? You aren't going to think, oh, great, they're a lovely person now. You're going to think, what do they want? Why are they being nice? Mm -hmm. You're going to be really suspicious. And it's important that everybody knows that if you are changing from a negative to a positive, there's a time period of going from a lack of trust to to gain trust. Mm -hmm. And it takes more than once. It takes however long it takes for people to regain that trust. And so for me, the longer you've been in an industry where there's been a lack of trust, the harder it's going to be to change that person's mind. Yeah. It's almost been ingrained into you, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've started to question the bacon butter now that my son's brought me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, be suspicious. What does he want? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'll tell you something, you know, we have this thing, um, you know, reciprocity, which means that if you if somebody does us a small thing, we feel grateful because what that does is it says we are connected and the human brain is hardwired to stay connected with a community. And so what what happens is it will, your brain will start to look, either seek out or at least take presented opportunities to offer back to that person. Okay, mm-hmm. and usually the brain looks for something bigger. Yeah. Okay. So, so you, you, your son brings you a bacon butty. You want to bring him his favorite meal and his favorite drink as well with yep. a toy. You know, you you want to put bells on it basically. And and this is another thing about one of the barriers I think is because health and safety traditionally has been delivered very negatively. If you're caught doing something wrong, you're told off. If you have an audit and you get some reds, then it's all about what you're doing wrong. If there's a disciplinary, if there's an investigation, it's about 
what went wrong. So in health and safety, there's been this real negative kind of delivery. And so, of course, people don't like it because people don't like being, you know, in the firing line. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the other barriers is that we need to start turning around and making safety very positive instead. Yep. So catch people doing things right. Tell them when you see, you observe that they are a good role model. I mean, I I said to somebody not that long ago, I saw a young guy doing something really good. And I said to him, that was really impressive. Where did you learn that? And he said, he told me. And that Mm -hmm. was his manager. So I went over to his manager and said, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you're a brilliant role model. You know, your good standards are being contracted by, you know, new people coming in. And I don't think we acknowledge the good stuff as much as we should, because actually, if you think about the way people like to be praised or to be changed, (laughs) do you want to be kind of bullied into it by negative or do you want to be told what you're doing right and then want to do more of the good stuff? Yeah. And generally speaking, it's the latter. You know, there are people who don't mind, you know, that are more than happy to only be told when they made a mistake. But generally speaking, most people want to do a good job, as we said before. And therefore, if you tell them they're doing a good job, that just, it creates a sense of pride in doing it well, mm-hmm. which makes somebody want to up their standard. Because you, if, if you've got a standard and you take pride in that standard, it's very hard to lower it for anybody. No. So by praising people, you're creating a pride in that standard and it means they'll do more of the same and then they'll role model that. So I think that's another barrier at the minute is stop applying health and safety in a negative way. Are we good as, a, as an industry It's giving positive feedback? I think we, we almost have to force ourselves to do it. Yeah, it's really bizarre, you know, because I, I talk to people about stuff like this when I'm in work and people say, well, it feels a bit awkward, you know, if you mm. sort of And I say to them, it only feels awkward if it's contrived. Mm. If you think to yourself, it's it's a it's a mindset. If you think to yourself, oh, he's done something right, I should tell him (laughs) or her, right? Then that's more out of a duty. Even that conversation in your own head is it's telling you, I should do this. It's a sense of duty. If you like I do, if I see something, I think, oh my God, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. that's a genuine response yeah do you see and so the only thing that makes us awkward is if it's disingenuous mm-hmm. if it's absolutely genuine then it will come from that sort of place and i always say to people when they say oh it's awkward okay do you have children yes okay do you praise your children yes do you feel awkward no so actually praising people isn't awkward what you're doing is you're setting yourself apart because this is work. So don't set yourself apart. Yeah. You know? So what's been your biggest accomplishment or proudest moment? I think on a personal level, mm-hmm. it has been doing a job that I know adds value to every aspect of an organization, whether that be the organization itself to leaders, to the workforce. I know that whenever I am in contact, that I'm adding value because because people do have those aha moments. Mm-hmm. And 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 so for me, I feel valuable 
when I'm adding value. So on a personal level, that gives me a lot of um, a lot of joy. Yeah. On a professional level, I have created a um, a platform, a software platform that allows managers to change culture via experiential social experiments. So they do micro learning. We just give them sort of 10 minutes of this is why a situation happens. This is the psychology behind it. And it's very layman's terms. Go and do this and and then observe and see what happens and then come back. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be there'll be a did this happen? And this is why. Or did that happen? And this is why. So I'll give you an example of that. Let's just say that a team have identified that their, or, or even a survey has identified that there is a block at their manager level for information getting through. Mm-hmm. So it's all about communication then. And so what will happen is an automated email will go to that manager and say, this has been identified as something that would benefit your team. Go and have a look. And they click on a link and it takes them to a page that tells them, what good communication is and why. Mm -hmm. So remember what I said before, it's not just about people need both content and context. Okay. So this is why this is important and this is what you can do about it. So they've got both then and there's also an outcome. So it gives purpose to the learning. And so in this instance, it will say what what good communication is, why that lands in the brain the way it does, why Mm -hmm. it's good. And then it will say, for example, right, go and communicate, miscommunicate something, missing out some of the steps you've just learned deliberately. And then watch watch your team. Some of them will sit there petrified thinking, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do because he hadn't told me properly. Others will talk amongst themselves and say, do you know what he meant? Mm hmm. And try and figure it out between them. And then you might get others that will come and say, I didn't understand. Can you explain better? Yeah. By doing this, not only are you learning to communicate better, but you're also learning about how your team communicate amongst themselves, to you, how they react to miscommunication. Mm -hmm. And so what that does is it gives them experience then to say, if I miscommunicate, this is going to be chaos. Yeah. It gives them a reason to communicate better. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I suppose it also gives people sort of new to that position. So line mm-hmm. management and stuff, it gives them an idea of of how to operate in that situation. Because I know when I was yeah. when I was new to line management, I struggled. It's mm. it's almost that you've got the corporate line to pull. You've got your own personal values and beliefs to sort of stand by as well. And the two worlds yeah. don't seem to no. mesh, they collide. And then, and then the other thing is that what typically, if you have a survey and it says, let's just say 78% of managers aren't communicating as well as they ought to, then what tends to happen is that every manager is sent on a course. Mm-hmm which means that there is a percentage who didn't need it, but are going on it for the sake of equitability. So they're getting their time wasted. We also know that training courses 
uh, I shouldn't be saying this as a teacher, but <laughs> training courses, you're probably, if you're very lucky, then 20% will resonate and be taken back. Mm-hmm. And the problem then is if it's not used consistently within two to three weeks, the forget curve kicks yep. in. You default back to the way you were before. So then that becomes totally redundant, a totally redundant activity that you went away to learn. The The way that this platform does it is that it's what's identified for you specifically as something you need to learn. So that means that every manager can be learning what's relevant to them and their teams. Yeah. And also, that means then that that has a, a sort of ripple effect on the culture, because then as as the uh, everybody's doing the, these little experiments, it means that blended into that, there are leadership traits. So, for example, I just described how we were helping somebody to communicate better, but baked into that was a lesson in observing your team. So it's not just the psychology of the learning and the and the delivery of the learning. There's actually psychology baked in that is subliminal as well. And uh, so for me, any organization that adopts this uh, platform that works as a it, it starts out as a survey tool, it then interprets the survey tools. So it gives big data sets that then each individual manager can go in and specifically learn what they need to learn for their particular job and their particular teams. So it's very tailored yeah. and relevant. And, and for me, it's it's almost like the culmination of my life's work. How do I influence the culture of as many organisations as I possibly can without necessarily me being there and this platform is it yeah it does it sounds it sounds an interesting bit of software because yeah like i said it it benefited myself if i was if i had something Mm. like that uh when i was going through yeah yeah it has its it has a section specifically for first-time managers yeah as well so it does all sorts of stuff there's there's uh, webinars on there and and there's you know a library of good to know stuff stuff that i haven't written mm-hmm. um you know that other people have so there's a library in there uh, a frontline manager section so specifically for role modeling that sort of stuff so anybody who's a new first line manager there's some really useful tips in there because what i find is when you say to organizations do you do leadership programs Usually it starts middle management upwards. Yes, we do, but it's for the higher ups. And for me, it's that first time frontline manager that's going to have the biggest impact on a culture. Mm -hmm. And and also, like I said before, you can go to a training course and you'll only ingest a certain percentage of it. Mm. And then when it comes to applying it, you're almost reading through your books, trying to figure out what you're doing. Is it applicable to this situation? Yeah. Whereas with this solution, potentially, you've got, someone telling you this is what you need to do in this situation and it's relevant time-wise you're not having to flick back through a big you know lever arch folder of your notes that you've made and it gives you some some tips and that's why it sounds really interesting i mean the good thing is as well if you think about a training course if you do if something does resonate with you the opportunity to use that might not come up straight away Mm -hmm. anyway now, the way that this platform works is that people give feedback, your team give feedback, okay? And that is turned through the machine, if you like, 
yep. and can be returned. So the experiment part is returned within two weeks. So what that means is also the people who are filling in the surveys, right, are seeing a return on that very quickly, which means that they see the benefit of keep going. Because, again, if you do surveys normally, there's such big data sets across, you know, usually the whole organization that it could be six months to a year before there's any return on it and of course by that time people are like nothing's changed yeah. you know um what's the point yeah i know within network rail we have a very infamous survey that has to be done whether we do once a year and yeah. yeah the reaction to that sometimes is very mixed yeah try my best to be quite diplomatic about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but sometimes you like You'll send a survey off, you'll send your answers off and never really see anything come back from it. That's Whereas right. Whereas this, this sounds, um, it does it sounds quite fascinating that actually you get some interaction back from it. Absolutely, yeah. And what we always do at the end of the experiment, we always encourage then the um, two things. We always encourage the manager to journal it mm -hmm. so that they can see their progress. It also means that they can use that for CPD. It also means that if they, they can use it for their one-to-one um, -one performance reviews with their managers. So if they journal it, then I think it helps it stick as well. So that's a bit yep. more psychology baked in. We also then, when the experiment's over, we we encourage them to go and tell their teams why they did what they did. Yep. So in that way, they're all kind of learning together. They're in it together. And that's, again, helps to bond a team. So there's all this psychology baked into the way we do the, what we do, um, as well as the kind of obvious direct learning. Yeah. So where could people go to learn more about this product? So if they go to the Tendered website, yep. um, it's T-E-N-D-E-D, -E then everything that they'll need to know is on there. Or yep. they can get in touch with me, of course. I'm on LinkedIn, so they can get in touch with me on LinkedIn and I can provide them with information. And I, and I don't know if you can tell, but I love this stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. And one of the things that I am constantly doing is giving stuff away. And what I mean by that is I've worked in organisations where I've created culture change programs and they haven't wanted me to give too much away because it gives a competitive market edge yeah. to have me with that expertise and I don't like that I will give things away forever in a day because as far as I'm concerned when it comes to safety there is no competition take the edge in in your quality take the edge in your profits you know your your costs don't think it's a market edge with safety because actually we should all be working together on that that's the way yeah. i think so anybody who wants to ask me any questions about culture behavior technology anything around that then i'm more than happy to answer those questions and help in any way i can it's really nice of you to do that i think sometimes people people throw it out there say oh just speak to me and stuff like that but i know from speaking to you a couple of times now it's it's very genuine when you when you say that yeah so what can people expect from you next? What's coming up? What Are you working on anything? Obviously, you've got the project that you just mentioned, but is there anything else coming up? Yeah, so we also, I mean, one of our main things at the minute is that we use uh, technology to bridge the gap between human fallibility and their safety. Mm -hmm. And so we have created with Network Rail this device that will give a timely tap on the shoulder 
for uh, people who lose situational awareness yeah. when they're out on site. And I have read, because this is how dull I am, <laughs> Joe, <laughs> is I have read uh, the last 10 RAIB accident investigations from cover to cover because I've been picking out all the um, references to a loss of situational awareness, whether that's they become dis distracted or they become too focused or they're fatigued or for whatever reason, I've been extracting this information. And I can tell you categorically that every single one of them has at least one, but usually more than one incident of human error in that respect. And so this drives my passion because what I want to do then is I want to help our tech team, both in the software and the hardware, to create a device that is so user friendly and so easily integrated into business as usual that people embrace it as a yep. piece of safety equipment that will absolutely save lives. And then on top of that, I do a lot of engagement with the guys on the ground and the managers to talk about how we lose situational awareness, to, to help people to understand that you cannot, it's not humanly possible to be alert all the time and that you will, and I mean that, you will lose situational awareness whilst you are working trackside. That's a fact. and. That's everybody. So that includes the cost, the pick, the site warden. Everybody will lose situational awareness. And so this bit of technology will provide that secondary line of protection that if all those ducks line up and people aren't focusing all in one go, then that piece of hardware does not get tired. It does not lose concentration yep. or daydream. It's programmed and it's reliable. And therefore, it's that secondary line of protection that says those accidents should never, ever have to happen again. And I'm really, really excited about this. I'm really excited about it. I was saying to somebody the other day, my grandfather uh, was a maintenance fitter down the mines mm -hmm. in Barnsley. And he, 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 was just, he was just a really lovely man who was just doing his job. He had a team of guys that worked for him and their health and safety at the time was absolutely diabolical to today's standards. Yep. And, and, it, and, and it pains me when I hear people moaning about how much protective equipment or PPE or whatever that they have to wear because I, I think back to my grandpa and I think, you know what, nobody was doing that for him. And no. he got coal dust on his lungs mm -hmm. and had industrial asthma and literally, you could hear him breathing two blocks away before you saw him. You know, yeah. he struggled for every breath that he took because yep. nobody took care of his health and safety. OK, that to me is why I am so passionate about health and safety is because bellyache all you like. OK, if you if you're willing to have a mobile phone because it's convenient in your lifestyle, if you've got a home hub because it's convenient for your lifestyle, if you've got a sat-nav in your car because it's convenient for your lifestyle, mm -hmm. then I'm sure that if it comes to your personal safety, then technology should be used for that too. You know, it's a yeah. no-brainer.
if you're happy to use technology for, for just for lifestyle reasons, you should be happy to use it to keep you safe so that you can maintain that lifestyle. Yeah, definitely. I think that will make a lot of people think of things in different ways. When I speak to you, it does make you have them light bulb moments about the reason I'm doing this is because of, of this and the situational awareness piece that uh, I've watched the webinar that you did on LinkedIn. Uh, mm. that, that did make me realize a few things. And actually, yeah. it's not track workers' fault sometimes. No, not at all. I, I think I made the point. It's it's not a worker's fault. It's a human fault. Yeah. And those and this is why it upsets me when people get accused of of losing situational awareness because they're not alert enough. It's like the very person pointing the finger and saying that actually does exactly the same things. They they're still as human and they still lose situational awareness themselves. How dare they then accuse other people <laughs> of the same? You know, we've got to, this is what I mean about that negativity. We've mm. got to stop being negative around health and safety and get real. Yeah. And the reality is that humans are fallible. Technology is used all over now. Yeah. In order to, to supplement that, it makes sense, absolute sense that it's used for safety. Yeah. It's almost like when you get into a lift. If the door's closed and you put your hand into it and it yes. stops it stops it from closing so you can get into it, that, that technology saves you from A, missing your lift and B, yeah. getting caught in it. Yeah. But yet people are a little bit overly aware that oh, I have to wear a piece of kit now that's fundamentally going to keep me safe. It doesn't make sense yeah. to me either. No, no. Um, but, but this is one of the reasons I go out and I spend a lot of time on the sites because I like to listen to these these points of resistance because what I can do then is I can say to that person look here's why you're resisting yep. and here's and here's why that makes no sense at all yep. even to the point where people will say will technology replace jobs for example well actually it won't replace a job title it might it might reduce the number but it won't it won't take away a job title but here's the thing if we can prove again and again that having a person, a fallible person in place is going to put your life at risk, mm. but having this piece of technology is going to reduce that risk, are you going to rely on the person or the technology? People seem to, people seem to, they'll say to me, is it reliable? Can we rely on the technology? And I think, well, right now you're relying on a person and the technology is going to be exponentially more reliable than that you know and you back it up with the science you know which people can't really get away from yeah so i've only got one more question you'll be pleased to know um <laughs> so what's the one question you wish i'd have asked and how would you have answered it i guess maybe is because obviously part and parcel of my job is engagement mm -hmm. and i guess a big question around that is, well, how do you get people engaged? Yep. Because if they're resistant, which we've already established that a lot of people are, how do you get them engaged? And I use stories. Yep. And I've told a few today. Because the human brain, it stores and recalls in pictures. For, yep. for the most part, there are people who don't do that. But for the most part, we store and recall in pictures. 
And so the more that you can create a picture in someone's mind's eye, the more likely it is to resonate with them. They'll apply it to themselves. And then that way it gets stuck in there. Because once it's in there, once they've created a picture in their mind's eye, it can't be erased. (laughs) So then I add emotion into that. So there's two things there. There's the picture and there's the emotion. Because the higher the emotion you put to a picture, the better the recall. Mm -hmm. So I layer this up. When I'm engaging with people, I layer it up, tell them a story that creates pictures, add in some emotion. The minute you've done that, and then you you can end that with a, and this is how it applies to you. Or even better, get them to say, you know, how does this apply to you and get them to tell you or have you experienced this? And they tell you a story back. What you've done then is you've connected neural pathways from what they already know to the new information you're giving them. Yep. So they're getting they're getting a lot of psychology just in a conversation with me that they're unaware of. Yeah. But all I'm doing is helping it to stick with them Yeah. in a way that's meaningful. I'd like to say a massive thank you to Jules for being on the show today. And as always, if you like what you're hearing and would like to know more about the show, please head over to www.behindthebarriers.co.uk where you'll find links to previous episodes and the show notes for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, please remember that relationship is the foundation of accomplishment. So get out with your teams and create those connections. And I hope you'll join me again on another episode of Behind the Barriers.